0: Okay, so we've made it to the fourth class out of four on the five aggregates. And the hope is that we'll somehow magically wrap everything up tonight and be done with this topic completely. No. (laughs) It's, um, It's a big topic, but I feel like we've done a good job exploring it and we'll have yet another dimension to look at today. Um, hi, I see people are coming in. That's good. I thought I would begin with um, a review of the uh, exercises that you guys did last week, where there was uh, sort of a two-part thing. Sometimes, if you're caught, sometime when you're caught in suffering, look to see how strong that sense of self or me or mine is, and then, um, sometime when you're feeling spacious and open and relaxed, look again at that. Did anybody? Um, have any comments about doing that? If you did, no, okay. There wasn't anything particular this
1: week, but in the past, sure.
0: okay. There I'm was, glad you had a good week.
1: Oh, <laughs> I was until today when somebody hit me in the back. I was rear-ended on oh. huh The damage wasn't too bad for my car, but his car seemed like the radiator
0: got a hole in it. Oh, yeah, so a rear end. Those aren't fun because they just add complication, huh? But
1: I I wasn't, fortunately, I
0: wasn't feeling a whole lot of
1: suffering. It was just an annoyance.
0: Yeah. Are you guys okay? We're
1: okay. okay. Nobody was hurt. It's just I have have to report to the various authorities. It arranged at the fixed. But Anyway, you know, in the past, sure, but I have had something that was more suffering and more personal. You know, it, it's a lot of it is the feeling of the self feeling like a victim.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, uh,
1: the time when I'm least like that is you know when I'm at the beach or in the woods, mm-hmm. out in nature.
0: Right. Very good observations. Is that they're just under different circumstances, we have a different sense of ourselves, whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah, and I hope it's a quick fix for your car. <laughs> yeah. Anything else on that? You look like you have another well, thought coming. There were, you know, the other questions. Were-
1: we were I was saying at the end of last week that
0: I was struggling with
1: this so and yeah. three basic questions that are all related sort of okay. Um, one of the ideas of the readings last week was that you know the the five aggregates are not ourself, not part of ourself or a and we're not part of them, and and we don't own them, them. yeah, we don't own them, (laughs) And, um, it seems natural to me to think of, you know, the five aggregates, sure they're not me, but they are part of me.
0: Okay, yeah, um, Um, okay. (laughs) Like I said, the other two
1: are sort of related, the the one that is that, um, The one that most feels like me, I guess, is consciousness. And when you talk about consciousness not being me, what comes to my mind is is that you're leading towards some idea of cosmic consciousness instead, and yet the reading explicitly denies that.
0: So I'm left confused. Okay, okay. (laughs) Another good point, yeah? Do you want me to go ahead with those, or did you yeah, add a third? Yeah, okay. Those are the three basic questions. Oh, okay.
1: That should keep you busy for the next second.
0: Oh, great. <laughs> well, um, I don't know. Uh, I would say that, first of all, these are all great points. I would guess that at least several other people have similar questions. So, um, as far as the five aggregates, not being the self and all of that, we have to remember what the word self refers to in that little teaching, uh, which would be a true permanent essential self, you know, like a soul, basically. And the suggestion is that these things that we've been looking at, the body and the different aspects of the mental experience, uh, cannot constitute an unchanging, independent, Essential self that we can call ours, and the evidence for that is that we observe them changing. That doesn't mean that they don't exist. Um, one of the one of the philosophies that the Buddha refuted was that nothing exists. Um, we don't have this philosophy very much in our culture. We're very much existence kind of people, but. In ancient India, there were there were um, cults that believed that everything is a dream. You know, Maya. It's all um, the delusion of something or other, uh, illusion. Hi, and um, he was very careful to point out that that is not the case. You know, that hello. <laughs> you know, you it's here. Uh, so. I think I would qualify what you're... I don't know if that helps your understanding, but it's it's definitely not that we don't have experience. It's not that, you know, it doesn't matter what mouth I put the food in. Obviously, you better get it in this one if this <laughs> body is going to survive. So it doesn't... It's not meant to be a non-common-sense teaching. It's meant, actually, I and mean, why give this teaching? It's not to confuse us. It's so that we won't suffer. You know, it's so that we won't... Um, become attached to the way all these different elements of our being are. Because um, they're going to change. So that's the point. That That's how I would address your first consideration. And it may require some more reflection. I don't know. Does that help, though, a little bit? Uh, a little bit? Okay. <laughs> I'll take a little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It's just,
1: while I was trying to find one of the readings for tonight. uh, I found something else that um, is a teaching on selflessness Three basic
0: facts of existence. This is number three: egolessness. It's oh
1: very yes. Long I've mm-hmm. just reading it. The three
0: characteristics. But, okay, egolessness yeah, or emptiness or selflessness. Yep, anatta.
1: Yeah, and it seems, like, you know, from what I've read so far, it seems to be saying, you know, that there, you know, there is no soul, you know,
0: permanent, there's no permanent soul. there's no permanent soul, but these other things are, are not no self, they're not self, that's yeah. a big difference.
1: It <laughs> um, was talking about it being the golden mean, that contrasting, teaching that there was a permanent soul that lives after death, and the idea that after your body dies, that's it, there's nothing, and it's somewhere in between, but it didn't really say what it was.
0: Oh yeah, so that's okay. It is this 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 teaching is um, sometimes said to be an, an aspect of the middle way, and the um, in between eternalism, the eternal soul, and annihilationism. You know, the material, purely material existence, and when uh, when you're dead, everything is completely gone. Um, and in between those is. The idea of dependent origination, that things exist when conditions are there for them. And it requires an understanding of karma to um, go into that. I don't think we need to go into that deal of complexity um, as far as these teachings are concerned. Not because I'm I'm not dismissing this, but just because for. um, Yeah. But maybe we can return experientially. I mean, that's. That's how the Buddha derived this, is he had experiences that pointed toward these truths. He didn't expect anybody to just believe them out of the blue. Um, So has anybody ever had an experience where you were fully engaged with something, an art project, um, a craft, a sport, music, uh, that you were doing, and you were doing it so fully that you had no sense of yourself while you were doing it? Yeah, I see several hands. Most people have had that experience because it's a quality of the human mind that we can do that. It's an aspect of concentration, actually. So this is an experience where you have all five aggregates present, but no sense of self. Therefore, the five aggregates are not identical to the sense of self. They're not a sense of self is not needed to have full experience. It's optional. We add it on all the time, but the Buddha says that uh, you don't need to. It's it's a different thing. and you, You've seen in your own experience these are not the same thing. And so um, that right there is something that if you insist that the self is the same as the aggregates, you'll have to explain that experience, where you can have all of them present very strongly, but no self. I think this is an excellent evidence for not-self, actually, <laughs> those kinds of experiences. Um, Yeah, so I would point toward that. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, a lot of those experiences don't have a lot of suffering, do they? Mm -hmm. Usually they're very, very pleasant to be that absorbed in something, that engaged with something. So not-self is not like a blank-out, dissociation kind of experience. It can be full, powerful, light, pleasant. Yeah, Heidi.
2: Who was it that said, no self, no
0: problem? That was yeah. uh, that was Anam Tupton. It's the yeah. name of his book. No yeah. Self, No Problem. I like that. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not saying that we're going to understand this totally, and it's also not especially cognitive understanding. That's why I point toward these experiential things. Somewhere in you, you know this. Um, but we have a habit. You know, we have a habit of seeing in terms of me, myself, and mine, and assuming that's an entity. I also read some things last time about if you really look, you can't really find this mysterious self. Sometimes it's the body, sometimes it's our thoughts. Like, Who is that exactly? But I didn't address your question yet about the universal self. Um, That was actually one of, that's an easier one. That was one that I actually explained during the class last time, is that the idea of the universal self or the sort of cosmic self was very popular at the time in Indian philosophy. And that was the idea of form is in the self. And that was one of the kinds of self that was descriptions of the self or doctrines of the self that was negated. Um, Yeah, the Buddha didn't go for that. This is an experience we can have. People have experiences of oneness um carla brennan's newsletter that just came out a few days ago talked about her experiences of oneness on a long mountain retreat she did out in colorado and it's a very beautiful experience and she didn't claim this in the newsletter by the way but um, to equate that experience with the existence of some kind of an essential self that we're gonna i don't know dissolve into a death or unite with during meditation or something um, the Buddha was skeptical of that, also. It's not mostly not because he was, mostly because it wasn't that useful. It's like he's worried about ending suffering, and so, you know, whether or not there's this or that or etc., um, tangling up our our views, which is what we're going to talk about tonight, is what having views on things. Um, this is a great lead-in, Brad. Thank you. Um, he points toward if we have a fixed view about how things absolutely are, that actually will eventually be a cause of suffering. And so that's another reason he was concerned about these doctrines of self, is that they tend to be things that people hold on to, like this is how it is, Um, which he was very worried that might lead to suffering. Please don't do that, get compassion for us. We still do it habitually, of course. So I guess I would say, does that help? That the, the Buddha was clearly not was not pointing towards that. He he um, denied that in a number of more explicit places also. Some, but I'm going to
1: have to do more reading and
0: think about it. Okay, there's a whole sutta where some where a monk comes to him and says, um, uh, "I have understood your teaching to be that at the moment when the body dies, the consciousness will transmigrate and continue on," and the Buddha said you misguided man, how have you ever heard me to teach the Dharma like that? You know, he wanted to separate body and consciousness and say that consciousness goes on something like this universal self or whatever, a transmigrating soul, effectively, the knowing, you know, the knowing part of the mind, okay, the body dies, but then it somehow like leaps across space or something. And the Buddha gave a teaching after that on dependent arising. That was how he countered it. And he pointed out that consciousness is dependently arisen, dependent on sense organ a sense object for for and then some medium like light or sound um, and awareness so he um, pointed out the dependent nature of consciousness and so that too will cease when the body ceases nothing nothing of the five aggregates goes on that's why you need the karma theory to understand why that's not annihilationism he was clear about that also but i don't want to get into karma and rebirth and all that that's beyond the scope (laughs) <laughs> that would be, but we should do a course on that sometime. Wouldn't that be fun? We could yeah. all argue with each other and get confused about...
3: That's right. Creates. Create suffering. Get more create suffering. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're trying to
0: clarify. <laughs> but we run into the limits of the cognitive mind at some point. That's why, that's why we're about to meditate. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I understand. I, have a, I, by the way, have a very cognitive, um, analytical-type mind, in case you hadn't noticed yet. Um, and so that's actually partly why I'm teaching this day-long on September 9th called Dhamma for Scientists. It's going to be about the, the thinking mind and the, the advantages of it and the perils of it. <laughs> oh, is that okay? Can we... Um, okay enough for now? Or... okay. Please keep asking. I I really don't mind these things. Um, I just want to make sure that that we also get a little more context in the sense of views. But let's meditate first. It's a nice way to settle in. So please find a posture that's comfortable and upright and relaxed. Maybe take a couple of long, slow, deep breaths to fill the body with the breath. Allowing yourself to settle into the stability of where you're sitting. It's A fair amount of sound, and so we'll just let that flow through. You can imagine your body being transparent to sound and it just passes through like light would pass through clear glass maybe softening the eyes and the eye sockets sometimes our attempt to Sit down and notice we actually use our eyes to look, We're relaxing nose, relaxing in the middle of the head, the thinking muscle, if you will, An imaginary tension in the middle of the brain when we think. Softening the shoulders, maybe letting the shoulders drop or hang a bit, opening the belly area, and softening the muscles of the low back. to settle into the simple flow of bodily experience, the form aggregate, body, the sound, physicality, As we attend to the relative stillness of the body sitting, we may use that to allow the mind to settle down a bit. So softening the tendency of the mind to be rushing off toward this or that, encouraging it just to stay with the present moment. with the flow of the mind in the same way that there's a flow of the body we have little bubbles of thoughts little perceptions letting us know maybe we recognize the artist of that song and some word gets delivered that's perception Just allowing all those little movements of the mind to arise and pass. It may be that as the mind becomes more relaxed, we can have the experience of knowing that we know. So the mind is pretty mindful. Sure, it gets caught up in thought sometimes, but basically coming back to being mindful in those moments when that is there, we know that we know we're actually aware of the quality of awareness in the mind, just in a simple way, and that would be consciousness. In the last few minutes of the meditation, you might try discerning what views are present in your mind at this moment. Your mind's more quiet now. So we're not talking about like strong political views. but There may be the idea that you're meditating. There may be an intention to focus on the breath or not. There may be a subtle intention that this is a time to think about something and that's what's been happening. Or a view that you're supposed to be meditating a certain way but it's not happening. We carry subtle background ideas about what's going on. This is one aspect of this idea of view, the orientation of our mind, how it is positioning itself, organizing itself relative to experience. this idea of views and I'll say first that there's nothing wrong with the views any more than there's anything wrong with the body or feeling tone or anything else, the views are part of sankhara and we need them to live, we carry them, we carry all kinds of ideas about what's going on and that creates our culture actually. Um, so they're very useful. However, uh, there's a lot of suffering from uh, getting stuck in them, unfortunately. And so it pays us to, behooves us to become aware of them. We're most aware, of course, of the views that, um, you know, that we, that are more solid. You know, that we carry as senses of this is true or this is not true. Um, so-called speculative views about how things are. However, um, there's a, there's lots and lots of suttas about um, the trouble we get into with the way we're holding on to things of this nature. And in fact, there was a um, kind of a set. These aren't going to be immediately relevant for us, but I'll try to translate them. But, so there was a set of the ten speculative views that the um, Buddha would talk about, that people would hold. And they were things like a Buddha exists after death. A Buddha does not exist after death. A Buddha neither exists nor doesn't exist after death. And both exists and doesn't exist after death. Indian logic doesn't work like Western logic. They have, this, they have these um, four possibilities. We tend to think there's only true or false, but they had four. So they included both and neither as alternatives. I like this as a creative way to do logic. Um, and other things, you know, like the origin of the ocean and those sorts of things, or the body and the soul are the same, or they're different, or whatever. But we can translate into, you know, common views that people hold here. Religious views, political views, etc. And uh, the Buddha would, sometimes people would come to the Buddha and they would demand to know the answer to these speculative views. Which of them is right? Or, you know, this one's right and I'm, I want to talk about it. And the Buddha was so clear when those things happened. He would always, he was very smart and subtle about it. He would sort of steer the person away from this tendency of the mind to get stuck on an idea. And he would instead say, notice that your mind is stuck. Notice what's happening in your mind. Or, you know, this, this view that you're stuck on notice that it doesn't actually lead toward the end of suffering, and that's not, so it doesn't, it just doesn't relate to what I teach. He he, he never took stands and said, it's like this, so stop arguing about it. He would say, whether it's like this or like that is not relevant for the end of suffering in your mind. And so, um, you know, you can philosophize if you want, but uh, be aware that, if you cling to that, it's going to cause suffering. That's that's what I want to teach you about, is don't cling. So, for example, I'm going to read from a sutta, um, where somebody comes to him and is, you know, yammering about these views, and the Buddha responds by saying, the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person, which is his way of saying people who don't practice, <laughs> the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person doesn't discern view, doesn't discern the origination of view, doesn't discern the cessation of view, doesn't discern the path of practice leading to the cessation of view. What's that a summary of, those four positions? View, the origin, the cessation, and the path, the noble truths, right. So they don't look at view in terms of the four noble truths. For that person, they are not freed from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distresses, and despairs. They are not freed, I tell you, from suffering and stress. But the instructed noble disciple, that's us, (laughs) Uh, discern view, discern the origination of view, discern the cessation of view, discerns the path of practice leading to the cessation of view, and so for them, that view ceases or clinging to that view they are freed from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. They are freed from suffering and stress. So, uh, you know, why does he say that we should view things, like including views, in terms of the four noble truths? What teaching does that relate to? So that's wise view. permanent well, impermanence, yes, you're right. So wise view is about impermanence. So yes, it's about impermanence, showing that views are impermanent. Arise and they arise and cease, and exactly. Um, mm. And also, seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths is, is wise view. It's the first step of the Eightfold Path. There's two components to wise view, right? Seeing cause and effect, and seeing in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So That's why the Buddha spends all this time in suttas. We've run into it in other suttas that we've read even in this course the Buddha says, they see this, they see the arising of this, they see the cessation of this, and they see the path leading to the cessation of this. He's he's reminding people of wise view, you should see in terms of those Four Noble Truths. And so, and then he applies that to a zillion things. In this case, he applies it to view itself, which I love, right? Wise view is that you should notice that views arise and pass. This is very clever because it points out that the Buddha is not proclaiming a view. It's not the usual religion thing. So he's proclaiming that you need to go beyond these fixed views. My view is that views change. (laughs) That's what he says, and you should know this. And so, um, you know, you might say, well, this is kind of making a big deal about holding the view that Tathagata exists after death, you know, the Buddha exists after death. How can that be something that's so critical that you see the arising and passing of that? And basically, it's not in this sutta, but he says it in other ones, Basically he says if you're clinging to this view and somebody else clinging to that view, at some point you're going to be in conflict. <laughs> it's as simple as that. So it says there's going to be conflict if you're holding on to views. Um, so, we need to look at this in ourselves because, you know, like I said, views are essential. So we can't, we can't just not have any views. That's like saying, well, the body suffering so i'm not going to have a body well sorry it doesn't work that way so we have to be very careful we have to look more at the clinging where are we clinging where's the case where we have a view but we've held on to it longer than it's useful or we've held on to it in a way that puts us in conflict with someone else this is very this can get very subtle on deep practice because you know there are people out there proclaiming their views and then what do we do about that gets very practical um
4: Okay, so, how can I say
5: this? You know, yeah, I have got the grasp of, of the teaching, but at what point, you know, I mean, at what point with other views, conflicting views, I mean, you, you're not supposed to, you know, insist and get stuck on it and all that stuff, but but then it comes this other conflicting viewpoint, and and at times I feel like, okay, kind of, my feeling is like, okay, I'm giving up, okay, whatever you say, you know, because I, I, I'm i not supposed to cling to my view, okay, I, am, I have my view, but, uh, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, is it, like, does that mean that you middle, have to give
0: in to somebody else's view?
5: Yeah, and, and sometimes, it's. are Decisions that need to be made, right? Yeah. Laws to be written. Well, yeah,
0: there were times when the...
5: How do you really...
0: This is a great question. I love this question because remember I said earlier there was that example where the person came to the Buddha and said Well, I think your teaching says that consciousness goes on and he said no, misguided man, that is not true So he um, upheld his view as a teaching out of compassion So what I think So I don't have a complete answer to your question because it has to happen in the moment. But I think the Buddha is pointing toward operating at a deeper level then. You know, it's like, okay, this person is proclaiming a view. What value can I bring into this? There are three wise intentions, for example. There's letting go, but there's also love and compassion. So it could be that we find a way to connect with them in some other way. There are many examples of people in the moment, I don't know that we can do this hypothetically, but you know, somebody comes and argues with them, and somehow they say something that uh, d- diffuses the argument and helps the per- and, and reminds you know like just acknowledging the other person's view. Sometimes, for example, we sometimes have a one issue that we have in arguments is that we think that acknowledgement is the same as agreement. Mm-hmm. It is not. So if somebody comes and says, "I think X." I could say to them, I hear that you think X. And how could they disagree with that? I told them what I heard them say. And often people will actually soften if you say that. Wow, I'm hearing that this is really important to you. Or I'm hearing that you totally don't agree with that proposition. It's on the ballot. And for the most part, they might be surprised by that. And then, maybe there's a way to connect and say you know i also am concerned about crime or something like that this is just a very simple example and it doesn't always work it can't be a formula but i think the the invitation is to not just meet at that same level but find some other way based on the wise intentions of love compassion and letting go at some level yeah Yeah. does that help a little bit It never, it doesn't say be a doormat, it doesn't say that. <laughs> the Buddha was not a doormat. <laughs> I
2: think for, for myself I tend to cause a lot of my suffering for myself through clinging to views and identifying myself with my views and then identifying other people with their views.
0: I go through this too, yeah. <laughs>
2: Then if they hold a view that like I consider very wrong, then they are so wrong. Right. It's all about them. Nothing they, they say can be right. Right. The terms come out. Um, yeah. And I don't acknowledge all the time that their views will also change and they are impermanent
0: also. Right. And their views are not their self. Exactly. And my views are not myself. So if somebody criticizes my view, they are not criticizing me. They have not devalued the quality of my heart in any way. That's very hard, though, when we're attached and identified with our views. Ajahn Amaro talks about, um, in one of his books, how he went through a period, you know, he's a monk, right? And so he uh, he was at that point in some kind of a leadership position, and he had to go to a lot of meetings. The monk's life is not like just sitting all day. They have meetings and stuff. And so he... Um, he went through a period where just he just played with um, never uh, identifying with any view, so never defending himself if people said, "Well, Amaro thinks blah blah blah," and they totally mischaracterized what he said. And he he practiced not, um, you know, not responding to that and, and feeling himself. Nope, I don't. I, that's not what I said. But not saying, "Hey, that's not what I said." He said it was such a great practice. Is that he? Um, He really felt what it felt like to have other people believe something about him that wasn't true Mm -hmm. and feel the suffering of that but feel that it wasn't it didn't have to be suffering unless he really identified with it i mean i assume he didn't do anything that was going to damage the monastery or anything but it's a fun thing to play with you know can we let our reputation actually be arise and pass in different ways We receive so many projections from other people. If our job were that we had to defend against all of the projections that we're receiving, it would be impossible. It would be impossible. So we start to see the suffering associated with views then, actually. Let's take a look um, at this excerpt from MN 11. I sent it actually on the summary, and I sent a little file. Would somebody just read it? It's just um, two, three sentences. Monks, there are four modes of clinging. Yes, Sarah?
6: Monks, there are four modes of clinging. Which four? Sensuality clinging, view clinging, habit and practice clinging, and doctrines of the self
0: clinging. Yeah, and then I had a little question afterwards about what they are and do they operate. So, we've been talking about the views the second one so these are these ideas orientations what about sensuality clinging what is that it's not a complicated question yeah stuff you want stuff to feel good (laughs) yeah (laughs) matthew brensilver is um, a wonderful teacher who says we have two wants we want to look good and we want to feel good (laughs) it's like yeah that's true (laughs) pretty much comes down to that so sensuality clinging is all about you know the pleasures and the comfort in that. So that's fairly clear. Habit and practice clinging. what is that? I mean, it's straightforward enough, but what's an example, Sarah?
6: I don't know if this is right, that this is just what occurred to me when I read this. I thought about our automatic programming, like when we get up in the morning and we do things in a certain order. Gotta make the coffee, and like yeah. If something broke that routine somehow, then it's like, ah, what do I do? I we have to confused, think. get <laughs> confused, yeah. Don't make me think, I haven't had my coffee yet. You know.
0: Yeah, that's a good example, is that we have these habits or practices or rituals, you know, our tea-making ritual or whatever it is. And, you know, it may be that if it gets disrupted, we just feel confused for a moment and then go on. Um, you know, we get a phone call in the middle of it, or our child falls down the stairs and we have to go tend to them or whatever. Um, but there, they can be big suffering. You know, you've probably experienced things where somebody was doing something and you, interrupted them and they got angry you know it's like or it's like stop loading the dishwasher that way it's got to be this way you know it's like dishwasher loading is an area of big clinging for people right you do it wrong mm. so you know this are like this these little things in our lives val yeah it's fun
4: to see it on retreat
0: and on retreat right yeah, exactly
4: I mean, you know like the time that you usually get up in the morning, or the time that's disrupted, or what you eat, or what you eat, and
0: all know. the judgments about how other people are doing things—like, why are they taking the peas like that out of the bowl? You know, <laughs> <laughs> so these are, yeah, these are small examples, or sometimes big ones. The Buddha was also referring to um, uh, more seriously to like religious practices where people would get caught in. Like, at the time, the Brahmins had these very complex rituals that were said that they had to be done exactly correctly Mm. to do the fire puja and all these things. And they were very caught up in that whole thing. Um, And so that was part of this um, thing that he was talking about there. Also, though, even more challengingly for us, is that a word, was not clinging to the precepts. So, you know, we could cling, we can cling to our idea. We don't really cling to the precepts. We cling to our idea of what the precept is. So, we can cling to various notions of purity around our practice, you know, like um, wise speech means always telling the complete truth, (laughs) you know, and then we like miss the context and, you know, or something. Or, you know, people get caught up in, this has got to be organic, non-GMO, you know, <laughs> locally produced, you know, etc. It's like, oh, you know, you know, it, it can be hard to feed people these days because of the clinging around different kinds of foods. You know, you know it's nice to support these things, um, but uh, we're talking about nourishing the body. <laughs> and so it's like you can get caught up in these things. Um, yeah, so that's also a fairly straightforward one. And then there's doctrines of the self-clinging. This is actually a subset of clinging to views, but he, the Buddha considered it so important that he separated it out into one. And we talked about a few of those last time, like those four, but those four are um, a little bit related to more to what was going on in India at that time. You know, these days we have other doctrines of our self. Mostly we have a materialistic self, you know, the self that's the body, basically. That's what our culture is interested in. Um, so all of these, he says, are forms of clinging, and this is, you know, the the step independent origination where suffering becomes inevitable. If you get to the step of clinging, um, you're going to go through the rest of the cycle. So that's why it's kind of important to know what they are, what these modes are. Do you see these modes operating in your life in various times? Always. I do. I do, too. Yeah, it's a matter of cling, let go. Cling, get burned, let go. Mm -hmm. Start to cling, remember, unstick, whew, you know, and then (laughs) cling. (laughs) Observing the arising and passing of clinging is actually another one of those things that we do in terms of observing impermanence and observing in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So it's worth taking in that these views are, are part of uh, part of this. One more thing that we should think about, whether we're holding lightly enough. We have to have them, but can we hold them lightly enough? Very subtle area of practice. My teacher spent about 10 years working just on views. I mean, he did other things too, but that was like the focus um i feel like i would need at least 10 more years on this so there's a wonderful sutta called the honey ball um which is about actually it's about mental much of it is about mental proliferation but he um the buddha talks about in one section of it he talks about um what happens when we uh, start to spin around a view. And we know—we all know this process. It's like you, you think of something or something happens and you say, oh, that shouldn't have happened or that shouldn't be like that. And pretty soon it's like, I'm going to write a letter to my councilman <laughs> saying that this should be made illegal. I can't believe this would go on. How could people <laughs> even think that this was a good idea? Don't they see, don't they have any social sense of like, protecting society and making it nice for everybody, this whole world is going to hell in a (laughs) handbasket. Have you ever done anything like this? Okay, (laughs) everybody knows about This is this idea of mental proliferation. So, let me read a little quote. Um, As to the source through which perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation beset a person, as to that, if nothing is found there to delight in, welcome and hold to, that means grip, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust of the underlying tendency to aversion of the underlying tendency to views of the underlying tendency to doubt of the underlying tendency to conceit of the underlying tendency of desire for being and of the underlying tendency to ignorance so those are called what are called the underlying tendencies we don't need to know that list but this tendency of the mind so he says if we don't cling to our mental proliferations it's the, it's, it undermines the very tendency of the mind to have all these problems like doubt, aversion, conceit, views. And then there's one more line. This is the end of resorting to rods and weapons, of quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malicious words, and false speech. Here, these unwholesome states cease without remainder. So he says that basically mental proliferation is the cause of war. If I, if I may bluntly interpret that, um, but he says, you know, this tendency of ours to grab onto something and then spin it into a whole world view around that, our whole philosophy or theory of why this is wrong, is the cause of quarrels, brawls, disputes, and then things going to fights up to um, harming people. That's a pretty serious claim. What is
2: the
0: number of that? Mn18. 18 Majima 18, the Honeyball Sutta. It's very interesting. It has a bunch of other stuff in it. I just picked out a juicy part. Um, but um, so this is worth reflecting on. Um, you know, none of us are literally going to war right now. I hope, but we may have people with which we are in dispute or with which we've had some malicious words lately or something. And, you know, we can sort of think in our mind, okay, was there a degree to which I contributed to that? Or anytime, even when we're just doing it not with another person that we're disputing with, but you know, we're sitting in the shower spinning on our theory about why such, you know, why if I ran the world, it would be so much better because I would do blah, 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 blah. It's entertaining, but what are we feeding? We're feeding the tendency to mental proliferation, which is ultimately the cause of some of these things. So I think about that in myself. And it can be hard to interrupt because it's so much fun, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when there's nobody there opposing you and you get to just create this whole view all on your own. And nobody says, well, what about the illogic of that? Or what about the ethics of that? Uh, It's great. But it's not so great because we're feeding these underlying tendencies. So just something to think about. Not too carefully, though. Don't spin on it. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) But something to consider um, is what we're doing with our mind. Yeah.
5: Yeah. So so I have a question. Okay. Since you are a practitioner with much longer experience than I am, many of us probably, most likely, what what does your mind spend the time on?
0: When I can be mindful, um, I find that the tendency of practice is that it becomes simpler, actually. Um, I spend time actually feeling what's happening through my body. Um, when things arise and pass, I notice that. I notice if I'm thinking, sometimes I need to think. Um, so, you know, I notice, okay, time, time for me to think now. I need to think about my schedule. But I, there's a, sim, a greater simplicity. And I actually um, think that the simplicity of being is something that directly counters this tendency because of the word that's used, mental proliferation. So it's also, um, you know, it's like complication is another translation of this. It's when we make things complicated, when it's all about this is supposed to be like this, oh, but what if she thinks that, and, you know, this, this whole building of stuff. And so... I find over time there's a simplification of experience. Just taking this. Sitting here in a room with people talking about the Dharma. Doesn't have to mean a lot other than that. Yeah. yeah. Do you guys want a few minutes break or or not? No. Okay. Cool. <laughs> we can go on then. So So, I like that actually your question is great, Carlotta, because um, I want to talk a little bit about how do we start working with this. It's like, okay, so I get that mental proliferation and clinging to views is something to notice when the mind's starting to do that, because we all have that tendency. So, um, given that views are not going away, how can we start, you know, how can we actually work with these things so that we? have views but hold them lightly, or so that we don't proliferate, it's not so troublesome. So I want to take us into reminding us of this fourth aggregate called the sankharas, which are... um, sankara is this word that refers to both the process and the result. So we construct constructions, we fabricate fabrications, we build buildings. Uh, The Sankaras are meant, we Sankara Sankaras, (laughs) something like that. So the word actually is, in Pali, their language works differently, and it actually kind of means both of those things. So it's um, the act and the result together. And so um, when we do the Sankara of clinging, that activity, the result is what? Suffering. <laughs> suffering. Exactly. That's why the Second Noble Truth says clinging is the cause of suffering. That's sometimes the way it's stated, but a, a, maybe a more subtle reading or a more accurate reading would be with the arising of clinging, there is the arising of suffering. They happen together. So when we are doing the action of clinging, of clinging, we are simultaneously experiencing the result of suffering. It's like that's just how it works. We're fabricating that fabrication. So, the, they're kind of of a piece, maybe that's the way to say it, they're of a piece. So we don't want to be doing that. We, we want to not be doing that with our sankaras. So what's the alternative? The alternative is that we can choose to build the path. That's the fourth noble truth. It says that there's a path from here to the end of suffering. And the path is, is a construction. The Buddha doesn't say that explicitly in the, usually on the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, but, you know, what is the path? Well, it's wholesome actions, it's um, awareness, it's meditation. These are activities, and they're constructed. Absolutely, they're constructed. These are not um, uh, nibbana, the unconstructed. And so we can use our mind well, is basically what it says. If you're going to construct things, why don't you construct elements of the path? So that takes us to the reading The excerpt from An 532, which is the second one that I sent, would somebody please read that? It's just uh, a couple sentences. Yeah, James.
6: To whatever extent there are phenomena that are conditioned, the the noble eightfold path is is declared the foremost among them. Those who have confidence in the noble eightfold path have, have confidence in the foremost, and those and for those who have confidence, in the foremost, the result is foremost.
0: Right. So, this is just making it clear to us what's the best thing you can construct. We construct stuff all day, and some of it's unwholesome, um, like the mental proliferation. Some of it's really wholesome, like mindfulness and like generosity. And a lot of it's kind of in the middle, <laughs> you know, like, uh, I don't know. One time I was on. I was watching what my mind was producing. I was watching these little spurts that come out of the mind. I was on retreat, and I um walked up to the dishwashing water, and it had a big um had oily film on the surface of the water because we'd had something greasy for lunch, and I was not the first person to wash my dishes. You know, and my mind produced the thought, "Oops, looks really greasy," or something like that. It's very neutral because I was trying to categorize things as wholesome or unwholesome, and I had trouble with that one. So it turns out there's quite a fair amount that's you know relatively neutral, but um, a lot of it could be more wholesome than we construct, right? So this is saying, this little quote, um, To the degree that you're going to build conditioned things, the Noble Eightfold Path is the best. And uh, if you have confidence in it, and so you produce these things sincerely, then um, the result is the best. You know, you will actually achieve the result of that path. It's not a trick. You can't do it and somehow not get the result. Um, which is one of the nice things about this practice. Are there any questions about that excerpt? Okay, so, um, you know, what does this mean in practical terms? So, I thought about that. Um, I thought about, well, maybe what I would do is I would list some things like how we could uh, work with each of the five aggregates regarding constructing things. So in terms of the body, what I thought of was we need compassion, you know, so dealing with the body, um, considering it with love, with compassion, this poor form that we have to run around in and um, do things with and clean and rest and feed all the things we have to do for it. I think there's a lot of wisdom in bringing more compassion to that. Equanimity is good too, Um, but I was going to use that one for feeling tone. So treating the body with compassion, you know, that's a good way to relate to it. Feeling tone, equanimity, so you know, there's pleasant, there's unpleasant, there's neutral. Most of our life is spent <laughs> getting pulled around by those, wanting the pleasant. How can I get more of that? Unpleasant, ooh, get rid of that. You know, neutral, poo, you know, I'm not paying attention. So it's, it's all this drama, you know, uh, and up and down and then. And so equanimity, I found, is so useful with you feeling tone practice. Is just start feeling like, okay, that's unpleasant. I was meditating this morning, and the, um, uh, a guy went by, the, the leaf blower went by outside. And as soon as I sat down, yeah. actually it wasn't. i had been sitting for a while, sort of into it, and it's like, brrrrrr, <laughs> comes up outside. I was like, oh, <laughs> but I actually had this kind of um, amused reaction in my mind. It was nice like, yeah, great, the leaf blower. One more okay. thing to include. <laughs> Perfect, exactly. Right so, you know, it could have been <laughs> right, on <time. laughs> right on time, exactly. That's <laughs> Gil's teaching, exactly. So, you know, could have been suffering, but it wasn't really. I won't say it was pleasant, but it was fine. Um, and then perception. This is actually a big one, so we'll consider this a bit. Um, perception. How do we train perception? Anyone know? We've talked about it in this course. Sarah.
6: Well, at least for me, I've noticed that A, what I'm looking for, and B, even just my set of concepts and names I have for
0: things. Okay, like so that's noticing perception. Yeah. yeah, yeah. so noticing like that you call something pain instead of tightness yeah. or something. Or a message. Or a message, okay. Joseph Goldstein had an experience uh, with one of his teachers where it was with... Um, Mahasi Sayadana, I think, where he went in and he was telling about his meditation and he said, you know, everything in the body is feeling quite open and free and I can sense everything, but I just have this one block in the back of my neck. And he said, block, <laughs> you're experiencing tightness. You know, block has a meaning to it. He's added something on to it. So that's um, an example of being careful with our perception you know, what word we apply. Um, So, accuracy of perception is is good, that's part of the uh, becoming aware of it. Uh, And then if we wanted to construct a path out of perception, if we wanted to actively do something with that, how would we um, frame our perception? Heidi, you said one thing earlier. Seeing in terms of impermanence, right? yeah you mentioned that one so the three the three qualities that you picked out brad um on that thing that you read um what were they called the three universal characteristics is that what they were called it doesn't matter um the those are called also called the three perceptions they used to be they were originally called the three perceptions they came to be called the three characteristics in later teachings but it's interesting to know maybe that in the earliest teachings, they're called the three perceptions. And so they're intended. So these are impermanence. We talked about them in this class. Impermanence, dissatisfactoriness or unsatisfactoriness, and not self. So um, in some ways, I want to be a little bit careful about that. You don't want to go around and like apply all, everything, apply that like a big sticky note onto everything that you see. <laughs> it's more like do it a little bit subtly, start training and seeing things arising and passing. My experience with the three characteristics is more that as I notice more and more about my experience, they become prominent, actually. I mean, just becoming more mindful and having more continuity of mindfulness, how could you miss the fact that everything is changing? And so it's, um, it just becomes more prominent. But I like the teaching of saying these are the three main perceptions because they remind us to check in. Oh yeah, am I noticing that this is not this is changing, this is not therefore ultimately satisfying and that it's not that personal. What's going on? So, this prompted me, actually was why I I remember this is why I included SN 22102. Is that it? The perception of impermanence, yes. In 22.102. Does everybody have that? I do have a spare copy if someone doesn't. Okay. Good. I'm glad you guys found all the readings, by the way. Suttacentral.net is really good. I think it's got almost all of them. Yeah. Um, or the books, of course. Uh, okay, so let's, um, let's at least begin reading this. There's kind of a lot to it. But um, would somebody like to start hiding here? Yeah.
2: Savati because when the perception of the impermanence is developed and cultivated it eliminates all sensual lust it eliminates all lust for existence it eliminates all ignorance it uproots all conceit I am
0: okay so that's a pretty bold statement because <laughs> those all of those things um, sensual lust lust for existence and ignorance are um, they're a set they're the three asavas. And then the conceit I am is like the final fetter, the last. Well, ignorance is probably the final fetter, but these. I mean, basically, if you uproot those things, you're free. So it's it's a pretty clear claim. So when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all of these. So we don't have to believe that, but it's an interesting proposition, right? Because the perception of impermanence, anybody can do that. Who can't perceive impermanence? So. I think it's actually a pretty positive teaching. It's saying, if you just keep doing it, it's going to take you all the way. And then there are some really lovely images. Um, uh, who would like to read the next image? Brad, you had your hand up earlier.
1: Just as Bhikkhu's in the autumn, a plowman plowing with a great plowshare cuts through all the rootlets as he plows, so too, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sensual must a uproots all
0: conceived Right. So this is literally the root, the the rooting out um, image, and it's such a great image, right? You, we don't do plowing, of course, but you know you can imagine the plowshare going through and just cuts everything there and makes the soil beautiful and rich, and I love that feeling. You know, all the little rootlets are going to be cut. It's like wow. If I just keep watching things changing, uh, every time. It's like punching holes in our inborn belief that this is permanent. This is permanent. It's like, sh- sh- you know, pretty soon it's it's got more holes than substance, and we can't believe that anymore. I don't think we need to read all these, but does anyone have one that sort of spoke to them, and they want to sh- and they want to read it out loud? One of these lovely images.
2: Well, I'd like to, the second one. Okay. Just as Bhikkhu's a rush cutter would cut down a rush, grab it by the top, and shake it down and shake it out and pump it about. <laughs> so too with the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivate cultivated, it eliminates all sensual blood, etc. It brings all Yeah. That's like grab it, shake it on the pump it around.
0: Pump <laughs> it on the ground. Yeah. What a great image. These are kind of powerful images, aren't they? Yeah. And then there's some other ones about mangoes, peaked roofs, and then there's stuff about chief, black oris, red sandalwood, and fragrant jasmine as like the, the chief, you know, it's like, these are the, this is the best practice you can do. Anyway, I liked that one a lot. Um, so we had a whole session, right? We had a whole session about impermanence and, and dukkha, and also a whole session on not self. Those were the three, perceptions. That was why I wanted to uh, talk about those in some detail. So the training of perception helps us use, remember I said at the very beginning, we can use the aggregates to free us from the aggregates. So we use the perception of these three perceptions to help free us from getting stuck on any of the any of the um, aggregates. And what creates perception is Sankara. It's, a, it's so beautifully self-reflexive, it's hard to think about. The Sankara's, because it's the act of creating, it creates all, all the aggregates are created by Sankara, actually, including themselves. So, wrap your brain around that one. Um, so then we go on, because that was the third aggregate, um, how we can create the path through it. And then the fourth aggregate, well that's, you know, um, Volitional formations, that's like many things in particular studying and practicing wise view I think I would put under this one is to Really see clearly in terms of cause and effect and in terms of the Four Noble Truths and that That as a volitional formation will take you very far Even though there's many many volitional formations we could do And then as far as consciousness, you know, how can we use that? (laughs) Um, One way that many of us, since we all have some experience in meditation, when you got your first meditation instructions, like you went to your first mindfulness class or something, or or intro meditation, probably you were told, sit down and observe your breath, or sit quietly and begin to observe your experience. And this is like a novel way of being, right? Is to create an observer and watch what's going on. And you think, first you get a little self-conscious, mm, I'm sitting here with my eyes closed. And then you start to realize, oh, there's something I, there is something to watch. And what have you done? This is a sankara. You've created an observer <laughs> um, who is the observer of your experience. Now there is a genuine knowing function of the mind, um, imbuing that with the idea that it's an observer, that's a sankara. But um, we can use, we use the consciousness of the mind, the ability to know, to slowly, let's say, change the balance of our, um, our way of interacting with things. So what I mean by that is normally, for most of our life, we have been totally absorbed in the objects. It's been all about... What I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I'm smelling, what I'm tasting, my ideas. It's all the objects, objects, objects. And slowly through um, meditation practice, we begin to favor notice the awareness. At the end of the guided meditation, I asked, or near the end, I asked um, you to be aware that you're aware. That's just a little trick for um, noticing that you have uh, two things going on. There's what's happening and there's the awareness of it. Those are two different things. And so we begin to kind of not have such an overbalance <laughs> toward the objects. We begin to include the knowing in our experience. And that turns out to be very helpful uh, to begin to observe the knowing function of the mind. Um, if we can't see it, we will, we will at some point believe that it's us or it's, you know, is what Brad mentioned earlier, aren't I the one who knows? Well, it's easy to believe that, but uh, if you watch carefully, and again, don't believe me, observe it, uh, it ends. So we are not always that one. So um, this is something that we can bring into our awareness. So I think the task for consciousness is to become aware of that knowing side of experience so that we're not so overbalanced toward the objects. And then that will eventually convince us that that too is impermanent and therefore can't be the essence of ourself. That was a lot, but...
5: So, so, let's see if I understand correctly. Um, by creating the observer, that would help?
0: It's skillful. I'm it not help. saying don't do that. It's right. very skillful at the beginning because we're so stuck in our experience. We're just caught in the flow of it and we need to create that observer And people often instantly feel relief, right? If you can observe your anger instead of just being angry. It's a whole different world.
5: My experience when I have done that is basically I feel like someone is taping me.
0: Is taping you?
5: Yeah. So Mm -hmm. someone is...
0: Oh, it's like there's a videotape. Yeah, okay.
5: And so therefore, I'm seeing myself in the the camera, right? You're
0: watching yourself. Right. Therefore,
5: I I mean, I don't want... to. I don't want anybody else to see me where I'm. So, so, so therefore,
0: I, I behave. Oh, okay. If that works, that's great. Yeah,
5: because, right. So that's, because that's it's like being on yeah. Camera.
0: So that's skillful if it if that helps with the with the conduct and the speech and so forth. All right. Sure. That's one way that it's helpful. So I'm I'm sorry. Maybe I wasn't clear. So yes, creating the observer is often a skillful thing to do. And uh, and then eventually, we have to see that that too is impermanent, but, or that too was created, basically. But it doesn't matter. At the beginning, it's helpful. So this is kind of like a two-part uh, training to walk the, the path through consciousness. There are easier ways to walk the path, of course, but that's maybe the practices that could be done with that, that aggregate. More broadly speaking, of course, um, you know, using the aggregates to construct the path is basically about learning to relate well to our mental and physical experience. You know, given that we've now done enough meditations on the changing nature of everything, that you may have a sense that you're not totally in control, right, of the flow of experience. And so, given that we're not completely in control, a little bit of control, but not complete, (laughs) And so, given that it's changing and we don't have total control, what's the solution? We have to fix our relationship with it, since we're not going to be able to make it exactly what we want. So, and that's all, the practice always has promised that. It never promised that you were going to get um, a, a life that consists of no physical pain, no, you know, no difficult people. It's like, that's, that's not what this aims toward, but it aims toward having a relationship to the way things are. Um, such that we don't uh, we're not getting stuck and clinging and suffering for that. The Buddha still had difficulties in his life. He had back problems. people tried to kill him. <laughs> you know it's like it wasn't that his life became perfect um, after in an objective, external sense, looking from the outside, but for him, there was no suffering because of the way he related to all that stuff happening. It's a pretty bold prospect so i'm not saying this is easy to for us to absorb but that's that's the that's what it's pointing at i think it's pretty cool pretty inspiring and pretty real you know i, I wouldn't believe something that said your life could be made perfect i'd be like really really you really think that <laughs> does anybody really believe that so or or you have to wait if, you, if you're really good and you wait until you die then you go somewhere perfect that's the other alternative. I, that, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think the present moment is more real than that. So, yeah. Alright, so if we need to just change our relationship, that brings us to the story of the sisters. Who would like to read the sisters? Val. Identical twin sisters
4: found their way to the monastery. At first it was very difficult to distinguish one from the other, and the monks and nuns often confused them. Not only did they look the same, but they also had the same mannerisms, identical ways of talking. And as nuns, they they wore the same...
0: Oops, it says work, (laughs) wore, yeah.
4: In addition, they both had extremely aversive personalities. They were astute observers who seemed always to see what was wrong. But after some months marked differences between them, them appeared. They remained as aversive as ever, however. One sister became however, one sister became more and more dour and discouraged. The other became increasingly happy. Soon enough the first sister left the monastic life, though this did nothing to improve her dark state. The second sister went on to become the guest master, and many of the monastery guests remarked how her happiness was contagious. The first sister directed her aversion outwardly. When she suffered, all that she could see was what was wrong with the world. The second sister looked inward when she suffered. She focused on being averse to her aversion and toward whatever clinging it created. The first sister, was crushed by her aversion. the second was liberated by her
0: interesting huh Heidi
2: I I love this story oh good it is so me (laughs) I'm such a keen observer who always sees what's wrong Uh, but I got really stuck on being averse to her aversion. Yeah, uh, I don't think that averse is really the mm-hmm. word. Maybe that's not the
0: right word. word yeah, that was what Gil wrote so we can Maybe you know, aware, debate that. Aware, aware of, of her so, aversion. I
2: mean, it's like,
0: well, <coughs> go ahead. When
2: you see how when I see how much my aversion is causing myself suffering, then it gives me uh, incentive, motivation to work on it. Yeah. Uh, to. to focusing on it and keep seeing that suffering and try to to release it as much as possible and that really has been an incredibly useful path for me um i create suffering for myself first of all and i create suffering for those around me all the time Uh, so i i love this story but that word just in that place in
0: that place i think um I think the way you've described it is of course the more traditional teaching is to be aware of it and to notice the suffering that it causes and then that provides an obvious path toward yeah. wanting to let go of it. The heart actually wants to be free and so we can use that on the path. I think this is meant more as a a little bit of a um, kind of pointing toward this sense of using What you've got to free yourself. So, if you're going to be averse, given that you have an aversive mind, what should you be averse to? You should be averse to clinging. (laughs) So, you know, wouldn't that be more helpful than being averse to your neighbor and, you know, everything else about the world? So, um, I've heard it also said that, um, you know, also in a similarly slightly teasing way, well, if you're going to be greedy, why don't you be greedy for awakening? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but I think it's not meant to be taken so literally. So I appreciate your pointing out that, yeah. But I like the idea, um, again, no, we not defending that particular language, but just the notion, which I think is what we're trying to convey here, that whatever you've got is okay. You can, you can use what you've got to get there. So many people see themselves as I've got all this stuff, I've got this aversion, I've got this sensual lust, I've got these habits, you know, blah, blah, blah. How do I get rid of all of this so that I can be a better person or be free or something? And I love the idea of why don't you use what you've got, <laughs> you know, use it. And and I, I actually have seen in my own practice that things will burn themselves up. I think if you actually tried to be averse to your aversion, it would work at the beginning and then it would fall away and you would just be aware of aversion because there'd be no need to put additionally aversion on top of it. But if your mind is burning with anger, might as well do something with it, right? Instead of just saying, this is terrible, it should go away. So I kind of like, we have to construct the path starting from here <laughs> so, and it's very inspiring to me that you can always make a path you're never ever beyond hope in this practice
2: well i, I think we are just naturally averse to suffering
0: yeah we so are like that's right if, if so when you see it it's like you, you want to let go your yeah, heart is going to want to let go yeah if i'm
2: angry and i'm aware of how how miserable it feels to be angry that's a yep. tool for letting go of it, like
0: this isn't working. This is not working,
2: yeah. I don't like to feel
0: this bad, so. This,
1: this is reminding me of something I think I read online from Lion's Roar. Okay. That, um, was basically seemed to be saying something along the lines of, when you find yourself suffering, instead of running away from it, you should embrace it as a teacher.
0: Mm-hmm. Ah, that's a great teaching. That's the task of the First Noble Truth, is to understand suffering. Yeah. How did that land for you, though, when you read it? <laughs> <laughs> Embracing suffering, we think... Oh. <laughs> Harder to do it sounds. Yeah, it is. Um, yes. It's something
1: worth
0: thinking about trying. Right? Yeah, and it doesn't... I mean, this is actually an important point. It doesn't mean that we have to, like just throw ourselves open and to the biggest suffering that we have. That may not be wise, actually. I mean, some people have really big things coming up, or you might have had something really difficult happen, and it wouldn't be that wise to just, you know, it's not that compassionate to just, like, throw yourself open to it. However, we can have the attitude of, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to turn away from this, or deny it, or pretend it's not there. I'm going to take in how I can. Of this suffering. I'm going to be open, willing to experiencing something of it, and then we take in what we can. Embracing suffering can look a lot of different ways. Um, one way that it looks, that we've explored very practically here, is to feel it in the body. So if you have anger, we're, oh, make it be, be interested in that. Where is that in the body? You know, fire in the belly, tightness in my back, uh, tightness in my neck. Uh, people feel various things. It's very helpful, actually, to start And that's a subtle, that's a, you know, we're not taking in the whole huge thing, but the body is often a great container for being able to connect with suffering of various kinds in a somewhat benign way, although we have to be able to tolerate physical pain. But if you've done even introductory mindfulness, that's about the first thing you learn, right, is how to tolerate some degree of physical discomfort. And then there are other, you know, creative ways to engage like seeing your version mm-hmm. like Heidi said it can be a mental exercise to say hey is this anger helping me right now I've also had it used a tool of when I'm suffering um, sometimes a question I'll, ha- I'll pose the question to my mind what would I have to let go of right now mm-hmm. to make this easier it's a great question mm-hmm. and it's it's not that you're throwing yourself open to everything but you're just being willing to say here's the suffering What what could be done here? Um, It's sort of a gentle way of helping the mind connect with and let go of suffering. And usually, I have to say, usually what I'm holding on to isn't the view. When I'm really caught up in suffering, mental suffering, that is, usually it's because I have an idea it should be or it shouldn't be a certain way. It's like, oh, yeah, if I could soften that, I could see, actually, this is just how it is. It doesn't matter how it should be. Right. (laughs) That helps a lot. doesn't mean I don't then act to make some change or something, but the suffering is often a lot around should.
2: For me, it's, it's so useful just to label suffering.
0: That's a great label, yeah. Because...
2: Otherwise, I'm caught up in the whole view. You know, you're so identified with you the. You say, oh, right
0: yeah, here. this is dukkha. Yeah,
2: or whatever. And as soon as I, and I identify I'm suffering here, then the second thing is always, okay, how am I causing suffering by clinging?
0: Where might there be something clinging? Yeah, yeah so exactly. Like,
2: but it can take hours to sometimes recognize mm-hmm. this is suffering.
0: Yeah, humbling, isn't it? Yeah. <sighs> It's yeah, it's a habit that we have. But um, like the plowshare cutting through all the rootlets, <laughs> each time we're aware of something, we you know we diminish that habit a little bit. Surely you've seen over the long years of practice you've yeah. done that there's less <laughs> tendency toward that. So we're making progress. Yeah, but it's yeah, piece by piece sometimes, and yeah, sometimes a whole huge thing falls away in one shot. Sometimes it can happen. Okay, so um, how about another little short meditation? Uh, I wanted to point out something that we're capable of in our experience. This will be just a short kind of reflective one. So just sitting calmly however you would like to in some comfortable posture tuning into the body the mind maybe on the out breath relaxing and releasing in the mind and the head any thinking Even these classes we do some thinking, so just relaxing that for now. And I'm borrowing this from Bob's teacher, Tang Pulusa, sweet little meditation where we just begin by remembering that Nibbana, the goal of practice is very simple, actually. It is to have no greed, no hatred, and no delusion. That's all it means, it's not a mystical, faraway obscure thing. And so we open to our experience, in our body, in our mind, simple, direct experience, however we are, just accepting and opening to that. And we consider that at this moment, we are not experiencing strong greed. There's no greed at this moment. It's fine, yes it is. We allow ourselves to experience its opposite contentment. It's pretty good right now. And we also open to the fact that at this moment, there's no strong hatred in the mind. We're not hating something right now. There's no hatred. in its place there will naturally be some degree of love connection warmth openness non-hate and in this moment we're seeing clearly there's no need that we need to look really deep and obscure, we feel the body, we know the mind, there's clarity. There is no delusion, no strong delusion at this moment, we have clarity. Just this, there's the sound, there's the body. This is the extinguishing of clinging. It's a very simple feeling. We can taste it in our own simplicity of experience. Moments that resemble freedom. So, the aim of this was to give a sense of what it means when this phrase is used to be freed from the five aggregates. You know, it's like, well, geez, you know, I'm still going to have a body and a mind. But we can be free of that reactivity around them and that sense of not knowing them. So just sitting and simply acknowledging what's happening, with no strong grief, no strong hatred, relatively free of the five aggregates. And it can happen even if you've got a little pain, like my ankle's getting a little sore. But, you know, I would say I'm pretty free from that at this moment, even though I'm experiencing it. The aggregates are still going to be there until you die. The Buddha still had them after he was awakened. Uh, but there there can be no clinging to them there's a sense that they're just doing their thing and where <laughs> the mind is in touch in touch with a dimension of awareness or presence that's just kind of there and then there's the aggregates doing their thing doesn't need to get entangled in experience who was it upasaka ki who was a lovely thai uh, lay meditation teacher a woman very unusual in thailand um talked about an unentangled knowing it is uh, the thing that we're cultivating and experience an unentangled knowing I like that phrase so we're still functioning just fine but it's a different it's a different way of being and that's pointed to in this last one that we haven't read yet the bahuna on uh, Nikaya 1081 Bahuna. This does contain the word dissociated, which is a little bit uh, unfortunate translation because that has other implications in English.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: But imagine instead of dissociated, something like, um, just repeat freed in your mind. <laughs> um, would somebody like to read Bahuna?
5: Carlotta? I... For some reason, I didn't
0: print it. Okay. Oh, good. here. I have a, I have two copies of it, so why don't you um, take that one. Does anybody else want to read, or...? I have it in the other... In okay. Ways. You want to read that one? Yeah. Okay.
4: Um, I have heard that on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying near Kampa, on the shore of Agara-Aragara Lake. Then, Venerable Bahuna, went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, Lord, freed and freed. Free- <laughs> you <laughs> Dis-
0: can say dissociated. <laughs> dissociated.
4: and released. From how many things does the Thagatha dwell ta- 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 with unrestricted awareness? Freed and disassociated and released from ten things, Bahuna, the Tatha.
0: To Tathagata. <laughs> Tathagata
4: dwells with unrestricted awareness, which ten, Freed, disassociated, and released from form, the Tathagata dwells. with... You can un- say the Buddha
0: if you the want. The Buddha
4: dwells with unrestricted awareness, Freed, disassociated, and released from feeling, freed, disassociated, and released from perception, free, disassociated, and released from fabrications. Free, Disassociated, and Released from Consciousness.
0: What are those first five?
4: Those are the aggregates. Okay. Right. Keep going. Free, Disassociated, and Released from Birth. Free, Disassociated, and Released from Aging. Free, Disassociated, and Released from Death. Free, Disassociated, and Released from Stress. Free, Disassociated, and Released from Defilement. The Buddha dwells with unrestricted awareness. Just as a red, blue, or white lotus, born in the water and growing in the water, rises up above the water and stands with no water adhering to it, in the same way the Buddha, freed, disassociated, and released from these ten things, dwells with unrestricted awareness. Thank you. Beautiful image.
0: It is. That's what we were aiming toward at the end. So, um... Yeah, what does that evoke for you guys? <clears throat> any comments? Mm.
4: Inspiration. I mean,
0: somehow it's yeah. inspiring. It is inspiring to be free from these things. You know, when the Buddha still died, but he was freed in some sense from death. It didn't affect. It wasn't for him like it would be for someone who wasn't hadn't done that that practice, hadn't freed his mind. And this idea of the lotus that's, you know, lotuses are born in the water and they grow up. And then there's this sense that it's sort of standing um, with... The image is very nice, actually, because the lotus is definitely still in the water, um, down in the mud. Actually, there's, you know, that local artist, Anna Onelia, she's not local anymore, but she makes these beautiful images um, with... Actually, we have one in the office with um, little... um, usually Buddhist, but generally spiritual messages. And she made one that has a picture of a lotus, and it says, no mud, no lotus. (laughs) And so, you know, there's the idea that we're born in the mud, we're born in the water, and we grow and we're immersed in that. And then there's a way that through practice, um, you know, there is sort of a transcendence, but it doesn't say we transcend and, like, leave everything behind and just, like, float up into the clouds or join the universal self or something like that. It's like we're still standing right there in the water, um, but the, um, in some way there's an aspect of ourselves that is not um, participating in all of that. Yeah. and I think that's very much what's um, this unrestricted awareness that's not meant to be a universal consciousness. It's meant to be a dimension that gets open to. Um, this is talked about very much in the teachings. Is that there's you know, some way that part of the mind can be free, and we still have the body, we still have our feelings, we still have all of that, um, but that there's um, there's a way in which there's this refuge, yeah, Val. When
4: he says defilement in here, are we talking about? Hatred and greed, hate. hatred, and
0: delusion. Yeah, right. yeah, so he doesn't have. He's not affected by those anymore. They
4: would also. They could also come under fabrications.
0: Those are fabricated for sure. Yeah. Greed, hatred, and delusion are fabricated. Yeah. But this this lotus that's out of the water. That part is not fabricated. So that is freed from mm. being from arising and passing. It's freed from self, you know, having any kind of a personal identity, etc. Um, so this is very hard to talk about. That's why we use images like lotuses. So I'll stop putting any words on it and just say, uh, this is the result of building the path. So when we fabricate the eightfold path, that is the consequent result. It's very interesting is that we're not fabricating. You don't fabricate Nibbana. It's not fabricated. But um, we can get the mind into a state where it can open to that. That's why we can't understand it with words and ideas. I want to read also an excerpt um, from the Tibetan tradition from the Mahamudra school, or practices. Um... Myriad thoughts of anger and desire propel you within the seas of existence. Take the sharp sword of the unborn state and cut through them to their lack of intrinsic nature. That's the emptiness part. When you cut a tree's root, its branches won't grow. On a bright ocean, bubbles emerge then dissolve back into the water. Likewise, thoughts are nothing but the nature of reality. Don't regard them as faults. Relax. When you have no clinging to what appears, what arises, it frees itself within its own ground. So This is a little different way of putting it in that I'd like to say there's kind of two things going on. There's the way to practice such that we build the path and we build the path until the mind somehow opens to this unborn state as it's called in this and then this says this goes one step further and says once that's there that state actually begins to purify the mind when it's when the lotus touches the air and gulps in the air and says air not just water somehow that um has the effect of then uh, purifying what's left basically And I like this particular verse. We're not going to go into the details of it, because we're nearly out of time anyway. But look at all the images in here that we've heard before. Could you read it again? Sure. And remember, this is from a different tradition. So it actually includes some images that you would not hear in the early tradition. So I I hesitated a little bit, but then I thought, oh, what the heck, we're talking about Nipana, you know. Who's going to say what it is or isn't? So, but listen for images that we've heard before, because there are several of them. Myriad thoughts of anger and desire propel you within the seas of existence. Take the sharp sword of the unborn state and cut through them to their lack of intrinsic nature. When you cut a tree's root, its branches won't grow. On a bright ocean, bubbles emerge then dissolve back into the water. Likewise, thoughts are nothing but the nature of reality. Don't regard them as faults. Relax. When you have no clinging to what appears or what arises, it frees itself within its own ground. I think we can hear this intuitively. Heidi talked about when you just see the suffering, then you realize you don't want to cling to it. It's What's being alluded to. If you don't cling to what's going on, which means you get to see it clearly, then it releases itself. You'll find your way to freedom. But look at these images. A tree's root. We talked about roots, cutting roots. A bright ocean with bubbles emerging. What was the very first image of the aggregates that we looked at? Foam, bubbles, mirage, etc. This, you know, there's this um, universality. Taking the sharp sword of the unborn state, we had the sharpness of the ploughshare cutting the rootlets. Thoughts of anger and desire propel us within the seas of existence. That compulsion is another word for clinging, actually. So being propelled is you don't have a choice. So I don't want to overanalyze. These words are really just meant to they're meant to point. So maybe I'll let them hover. But we've made it to the end of the material. I wonder um, I wonder any reflection or further questions or reflections that would help feel complete about our exploration of the ways that we identify and construct our experience. Yeah, Sarah. still.
6: So- Thinking about this this phrase "unrestricted awareness" and the previous phrase "unentangled knowing,"
0: mm-hmm.
6: and like when we have too many layers and filters and
0: mental proliferation, proliferation.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. then that that's sort of just a a, a veil or not or or, or a tangle or restriction in some way and so the idea of just pushing that all aside
0: wouldn't that be satisfying yeah. <laughs> yeah
6: maybe just for a second you know that's all
0: that's needed that's all that's needed Good. Well, I want to thank you for persevering through <laughs> these four sessions. I have to say, when I was thinking about doing this um, class, I I, had, I was like, oh, I want to. It's time to do another sutta study. To study and it's the right moment. And then I I kind of opened myself and said, Well, what should I do? And in one of those moments, you know, my mind said the five aggregates. Uh-huh. I said, Oh, cool. I have, let's try that. I like that topic. And so I wrote it all up. And then when I prepared the material, I thought, wow, there's a lot here. This is really, well, I was like, we're going to do it. <laughs> you know, these, this group's been with us a long time. And so I feel like it, it was a real nice engagement. So yeah. I want to thank all of you and just for making this such a rich sutta study experience and practice, right? It's not useful without the practice. So thank
5: you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.